You are listening to Subro on the Go, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor's Subrogation and Recovery Practice Group, with discussions and perspectives on emerging trends, developments, and best practices. Now let's get started with your hosts, Dave Briscoe and Joe Rich. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Subro on the Go. I'm Joe Rich, one of your regular co-hosts. Um, I have my other co-host with us today, David Briscoe, out of our San Diego office, as well as Dana Myers out of our San Diego office. And today, um, in this episode, we're going to be talking about <laughs> Subro holiday stories. Uh, so we're hoping that this will be a little bit of a lighthearted episode to get everybody ready for the holiday season um, and to think about some potential Subro claims that may be coming up. So when I when the holidays come around in my house, it's usually I usually know when to start thinking about these type of claims because my wife starts watching all the Hallmark holiday movies and I start watching all my holiday Christmas movies. One of those being Christmas Vacation. And if anybody's ever seen that movie, um, Uncle Lewis, <laughs> who's a cigar smoker, shows up, lights a cigar. The tree is the tree is dried out from the dog drinking the water and burns the tree down. Um, so that's like the classic, I think, uh, you know, when I think of Christmas tree fires, that's like the classic scenario for movies. But we wanted to uh, wanted to think about, are there real world subro cases like that? And we do have some of them to talk about today. Right, guys? Oh, yeah. We have plenty to talk about, Joe. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me to join this podcast with you guys today. I'm excited because this is one of my favorite topics. Holidays, food, and subro. Nice. I'm excited to be back. I missed the last podcast. I was I had some serious fear of missing out because I was um, off doing some wildfire work when when we recorded the last one. So I missed it. And shout out to my wife because I, I told her I said I was so excited to be back on doing another podcast with Joe and, and with Dana that I was going to uh, rap the Jay Z song. I'm back like Jordan wearing the four or five. And she gave me one of those looks of no, you're not doing that. So yes, that's what our spouses are here for to keep us from embarrassing ourselves. So since Thanksgiving is coming up and it's the first big holiday here, right? Um, Jake Skaggs, one of our colleagues who practices in Louisiana, recently let me know he had a case. Apparently deep frying turkeys is a big issue come Thanksgiving time. And he had a case where uh, a drunken tenant tried to deep fry a turkey inside a kitchen, inside a house and fell asleep. And it nevertheless resulted in a fire. Dana, I think you have a, a similar case like that too as well, right? I do. And Joe, it sounds like I'm sure a lot of subro people listening to this podcast probably have had a similar case considering I found a stat that says every year, 900 homes at least are destroyed by turkey fryers. <laughs> so we're going to call this portion of the episode Thanksgiving Turkey Troubles. So Dana, tell us, tell us a little bit about your claim. Well, at least in Jake's claim, uh, his tenant was drunk. My tenant was completely sober. Uh, decided, though, that it was too cold outside in the snow to fry the turkey. He didn't want to stand out there and do it. And so decided that the brand new turkey fryer inside the house on the rug in the kitchen would be a great idea. He gets to stay nice and toasty and also heats up the home. So the tenant lights up his turkey fryer in the kitchen, it's getting nice, warm, throws that turkey in there, and by throws, I mean literally throws the turkey into the fryer and oil spills over the edge onto the area rug. 
that it's being fried on and up goes the kitchen. Okay, so paint a picture for me though. I, as somebody who's never used a turkey fryer, I'm trying to get a visual here. A turkey fryer, I imagine, it sounds big, like something you're, you're literally throwing it is, a turkey It is, it is. I've actually done it. I've, I've fried my own turkey before, and we actually have a turkey fryer. And, you know, we use a large jug of peanut oil. The oil gets super hot. And, I mean, it does splash. Like, you have to be really careful. That's why they, they tell you to do it outside. So what Dana's describing to me you know, I'm sure my wife would be none too happy with me if I tried to do that in the house. Oh, I love it. So what's the so what's the subro angle here, right? Thinking, um, you know, subro, we always want to think about where's where's the money first, right? We'll, we'll talk about, I guess, the case against the uh, the tenant, you know, uh, negligently using a turkey fryer. But is there an argument of a product liability case here? You know, most jurisdictions um, or many jurisdictions follow a, the rule that um, foreseeable misuse is not a defense. So I'm just wondering... You know, if, if this is uh, misuse to use it in the house, and if it is misuse to use it in the house, is it foreseeable somebody will, and therefore there's got to be certain protections in place um, uh, uh, by the manufacturer yeah, it's or a good, we it's, dead to rights? It's, it's, it's a good question. I think this is one where you have to look at the warnings and instructions and see with this specific maker model what type of warnings and instructions come with it. It's like with any other, you know, product. There's all ranges of quality that you can buy for these type of fryers everything from the very basic you know knockoff versions on amazon to very high-end you know celebrity chef branded versions if you will so i really think it's a matter of looking at the instructions and warnings and just hoping that you didn't have some intentional conduct that played a part in it yeah, exactly. And like what Joe's saying, the different types of fryers you can find these days, they power up differently. Some of them have propane tanks that you attach to. So there's some different components that you might be able to look into with regards to the fryer that you have at issue to see if any of those components might have contributed to the failure. And, and just a word of caution for the listeners out there. I know some professional folks out there who think they're you know pseudo chefs who come up with their own mixture of oils that they think somehow make the turkey taste juicier so you have to look at that too there might be instructions limiting what type of oil you can use in the deep fryer as well so we're going to transition now to bring it over to christmas we talked about thanksgiving and turkey um one of my wife's favorite christmas movies that we have to watch every year is love actually but Dana, you have a story that's not love, actually. It's actually the complete opposite regarding, uh, I think it's a Christmas tree fire. Is that right? That is right, Joe. So um, unlike the theme in Love Actually of love actually is everywhere, it was not in this apartment on this day. <laughs> so <laughs> we, I get a new loss that is about a week before Christmas, and uh, it comes over as fire, possibly electrical from microwave. So our cause and origin investigator goes out to the apartment and takes a look at fire burn patterns and very quickly determines this is not a fire that originated at a microwave. The fire originated in an area that has a pile of what was the Christmas tree. Um, just ash, literally just ash, nothing else. 
So after determining definitely an issue with the Christmas tree, do we have an electrical failure with lights? We're not sure. We was able to track down the tenant, female tenant, who confirmed that she lied initially saying uh, that the microwave caught fire because she was trying to protect her boyfriend who after a fight related to Christmas and gifts, decided that he was done with the holiday and just lit the Christmas tree on fire as he walked out the door. Oh, he, he literally did this on purpose. Go ahead. Oh, yes, he did <laughs> That's this on purpose. That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> yes, he decided he was over the holiday, over her, her joy of Christmas, didn't want to fight about the gifts anymore, and so he decided he would burn them and the tree as he walked out the door. On yeah, the I was hoping that it would have been, you know, that he just knocked over the tree in a fit of rage. And then we could say, you know, from our several angle here, obviously there's, you know, there's not going to be any coverage if her boyfriend had an insurance policy and lived somewhere else and no coverage for an intentional act. But we would try to argue there was, you know, negligence in his rage that he was just so upset that he, you know, uh, knocked over the Christmas tree, but didn't mean it to catch fire and, um, or, you know, flicked his cigarette in anger or something like that, where we can just argue negligence and not an intentional act here. But it sounds like he's just, a, a you know, that, uh, an awful person. So tough. But I think, I think there's a good lesson here though. You know, the lesson here is, you know, you got to get the, the correct facts from those involved. So you're not spinning your wheels trying to pursue, you know, some angle that's not there. So while it may not have been a, recoverable case at least you weren't wasting additional time or the client's money dana exactly so and we quickly ran through the angles that david just mentioned um, but when you have the female tenant saying no he took a match and walked over to the christmas tree and held it on a branch until it caught fire it made it um, an easy closer on our end yeah, I mean, that's about as intentional as I think you can get <laughs> in terms of starting a holiday-related fire, I guess. It's certainly not like Uncle Lewis, who's just lighting up a cigar and doesn't realize that he caught the tree on fire, including his toupee. But, uh, so let's, uh, let's talk about another Christmas tree fire case that comes from our, uh, our colleague Paula Walsh in our Dallas office. She shared with me a story um, about an insured's first real Christmas tree, and it's not a happy ending. So let me just let me just tell you that the insured apparently bought her first real Christmas tree. She brings it home. She decorated it with two to three strings of incandescent lights and decorations, and she left everything plugged in and on the tree nonstop for um, like. I, geez, I think it was like two weeks from what Dana told me. But she never added any water to the bottom of the tree. And after that, the lights she used were also old lights. They were like five to ten years old. And they had determined that the lights produced enough heat to ignite a dry Christmas tree. So because the insured didn't realize that she was supposed to water the tree and keep the water fresh so that the tree stayed as much alive as possible and didn't dry out eventually the lights ignited the tree and i after i heard the story i i mean i did some research the nfpa has all of these guidelines and standards for holiday tree safety if you just google it they have like instructional videos they have instructional sheets on how to manage your christmas tree because apparently this is like the number one cause of christmas tree fires is allowing them to dry out and having other electronics or lights nearby 
that are powerful enough to ignite a dried out Christmas tree. The Consumer Product Safety Commission also has a, a video that they have online, if you Google it, that actually shows how a, tr a dried out tree can burn and cause property damage. So very interesting scenario, but apparently it's very common. Yeah, I can actually attest personal experience to the flammability of a Christmas tree. Um, probably in one of the dumbest things we've ever done and back when I was a first year sub road attorney and, and hadn't had all of this experience. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we had taken pieces of our Christmas tree uh, afterwards and, and thrown it in the fireplace after Christmas uh, as, as we were trying to fit parts of it in the, in the uh, garbage can and threw pieces in the uh, fireplace. And that, I mean, the, the size of the flame that came flying out of the fireplace um, and up the wall, and fortunately it was a short duration and then, then died down, was enormous. Um, and, they, and they are incredibly flammable. But it begs the point for the Subro angle of it's so well known right, that this is a problem that Christmas trees are flammable, um, that again, it gets back to, is there a claim against the Christmas tree light uh, manufacturer or retailer saying, okay, it's well known that Christmas trees are flammable um, and that people, you know, are foreseeable not going to water them that much and they could dry out. You know, do you have to manufacture the lights in a way that there's a level of protection so they don't get so hot that they can ignite the tree. That's really the subro angle here that I'm thinking of. Or, or even failure to warn when selling the lights, right? As far as don't leave these lights plugged in unattended or 24 hours a day on a real living tree that's not watered. Right. And I swear, I mean, I've watered my tree over and over and it's still, by the time Christmas is over, it's, you know, brown and wilted and leaning over and scratches my arms up when I try to take the lights off. Um, so, you know, even if you do water it, it's, 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 you know, you've, you've essentially already killed the tree and cut it. So it's going to be dying here at, at some point. Um, so it is a hazard. Yeah. I think the warnings angle, like Dana said, is something to look at with the lights. I had a case several years ago involving rope lights that were used on a Christmas tree and I didn't realize how much heat they generated. But in my case, we actually did some research and we got an exemplar set of the lights and they actually had, I mean, it didn't turn into a viable case, but in that scenario, they actually had a warning tag on the lights that cautioned against their use in that setting. So if you have a situation where there are no warnings for the lights, I mean, look, you uh, big box stores are selling them nonstop from here through Christmas, but a lot of stuff is being purchased online now. So, you know, the, the chances of having insufficient warnings, I think, is significant and something that, you know, folks should look at, especially if they're relatively recently purchased lights. Right. Uh, that, no, that's a good point. We should go back. I mean, we sh I, I want to point out to our listeners, you know, this is there's there is an old podcast we did. That's a good one to go back and listen to from time to time. We did one called Are You a Good State or a Bad State? And it was analysis of comparative fault principles um, by state and and where some states, if you're insured is is just 1% at fault, your claim's barred. And in many other states, if your insured's over 50% at fault, your claim's barred. But in some, you know, no matter the level of fault of your insured, you, your, your claim's not barred. You just, your claim is just reduced by the comparative fault of your insured. And so what state you're in is going to matter in these types of cases because you're going to have a certain level of comparative fault of your insured for not maintaining the tree properly. But when you bring the claim against the product manufacturer, you're going to have these arguments we've been talking about, about foreseeable misuse. 
Um, that is, if you can identify the, the light manufacturer retailer, which is tough when some of these lights are coming out of a box that were in the garage for years, but, but there are better records today with, with online purchasing. So just final two thoughts there on Subro. Yeah, those are good points. Um, we're going to turn to our last major story now. This one, uh, I'll call it the Grinch who set the house on fire. Um, this comes to us from our colleague Chris Sharivas in San Diego, where, I, let me start first. I don't know if you folks know, but my co-host here, David Briscoe, is a professional when it comes to decorating his house for Christmas. And uh, he has every manner of light and blown up Christmas decoration you could possibly have. Dave, I think you even, were you on a show or tried to get on a show at one point, I think? I appreciate you calling me professional and not crazy. That's just that was uh, the highlight of our uh, episode here for me today. But but yes, we we are. I, I would say crazy in a good way, and we do try to go every year, um, go bigger and bigger each year. We do have a, a neighborhood holiday light um, title that we are defending again this year. Uh, the whole family's into it. There there are there's definitely over a dozen inflatables and over two dozen uh, other characters and, um, and music that's so loud that I will periodically get uh, my door knocked on um, saying, can you turn the music down? It's past bedtime. So you're basically the Clark Griswold of your neighborhood, right? You're the guy with yes. the bright lights and the music. So Chris, Chris shared with us a story about a neighbor who set their set her insurance house on fire because the neighbor disliked the lawn inflatables that were being used for Christmas decorations, which I think is probably, you know, again, one of the most intentional acts. Offensive. That I it's think offensive. You, yes. It's, it's, it's terrible. Throw the book at them. Yeah. That I think you can, you know, you can look at here. So while it is an intentional act and probably not something you can subrogate against, you know, it'd still be worth looking into it, you know, um, I, I found that one funny and I just wanted to add it into the mix here. You know, I think some of the other things, you know, we want you guys to keep in mind a lot of cases, um, you know, come down to these type of products and lights. So really just researching with your insured, getting the information about where they purchased this stuff, when they purchased it, um, how often they used it, how they had it set up with extension cords or power taps. Those are just some tips when you're investigating these things to help you expedite the process and really drill down on whether you have a viable claim. Right, guys? Yeah, no, it's an excellent point. And, you know, we didn't get to one, but I'll, I'll point out a, a, a nice Christmas present um, option for folks out there. Um, uh, Dana and I have been preparing for the next uh, NASP conference, and we were looking at smart um uh, IOT, Internet of Things, new devices for your smart home. And, and you know, uh, uh, out of a case that had a uh, somebody who left a Christmas gift next to a stove that um, was left on and ignited. There's some interesting new smart devices, one being a, uh, a smart stove um, connection where it'll actually automatically turn off the stove if nobody's in the room for five minutes. So this holiday season, if, if you're a family who's cooking a ton and has a hectic kitchen, um, you know, we don't want to be the family that accidentally left the stove on and caused a fire. So there's some new, new, uh, uh, smart devices out there to help prevent these. But otherwise agree with everything you said, Joe, it's a wonderful time to talk about these types of cases. Well, thanks guys. I really appreciate you joining this podcast. I think this was a, a good episode and hopefully everybody out there listening enjoyed some of these stories. Um, stay tuned for our next episode. We'll probably do one into the new year. But again, thanks, uh, Dave. Thanks, Dana. And you guys have a good Thanksgiving and uh, happy holiday season out there.
Thanks, everyone. Happy holidays. Thanks, guys.